1: Welcome and thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. We want to thank you all for joining us. I'm Daniel Davis and welcome. Today we have an interesting program today. We're going to be talking about childhood sensory challenges. Now joining us here on the program today is someone who's an expert in this particular field and she is author of two books. And those two books are When Kids Fly, Solutions for Children with Sensory Integration Challenges 2015, as well as Sensory Processing Solutions, Drug-Free Therapies to Realize Your Child's Potential. She is the founder and director of Integrative Pediatric Therapy and Integrative Concussion Therapy in Dallas, Texas. She also lectures and teaches nationally as well as internationally on sensory integration, developmental therapy, cranial therapy, concussion rehabilitation, and the efficacy of combining traditional and alternative treatments. I'd like to welcome to Beyond 50 radio program today our guest, Dr. Sally Fryer-Dietz. Dr. Dietz, thanks for joining us here on the program today.
0: Oh, thank you. It's exciting to be here.
1: Now, as I was reading your book, could you please tell us how this whole journey started for you and what's going on in the world that we have children who are coming into the world with what seem to be sensory challenges, especially when it comes to school, because I know that's a big one.
0: Well, um, sensory challenges and sensory integration deficit is not um, a new thing that we're just seeing more of, I've actually been involved um, in the field of child development and sensory integration for over forty years, uh well before I had children of my own um, But what made it very personal for me was when my oldest child uh started to show signs of sensory processing challenges, and he was in a good little preschool here in dallas texas and Um, but he wasn't doing the things that his teachers wanted him to do, and he was balking at writing and, you know, doing some of the, you know, learning how to read and all those kinds of things. Um, So at that time, the only alternative or the only thing that was suggested for me for him was to put him on medication. And I had been in California practicing physical therapy, working with Uh, Kids with learning differences for the 10 years um, prior, and I knew that there was another way to approach this, but there was nobody who was doing it in Dallas. So that's really what prompted me to open my clinic. Was for him and for other uh, kids like him. Um, I couldn't be his therapist because I was his mother, so I had to hire somebody who could work with him because it's a different relationship and. you know from there, it just grew. There are so many kids who you know go to good private schools um who you know have problems that nobody can identify and really just end up getting put on meds as a first resort rather than as a last resort. so it's been kind of my life's mission to help um help children um bring out the very best in them and go from there.
1: Now, it's really fascinating because as I was reading in your uh, book, uh, Sensory Processing Solutions, one of the things that uh, kept coming up for me anyway was the idea of writing, you know, being able to pick up and actually write. And I thought to myself, wow, I keep remembering back years ago, I was reading about how they educate in the Netherlands, specifically like the uh, people, the, the Dutch people and you know here in america i remember they first started imposing i guess is the best way that i could put it the idea of writing cursive writing by i think it was a second grade and they said typically that people in the netherlands don't actually begin writing cursive until much later in the grades like we're talking like fifth sixth grade and i thought that was amazing because thoughts behind this was the idea that when you think about putting the mind to the hand and the coordination that was involved, that they were feeling it was being forced, and that there's really, that you had to kind of let this come naturally. And when you think of how sometimes, especially in the public school system, at least when I grew up. Uh, how teachers can be when you're not following through or you're not getting it. In some cases, they could be rather mean, <laughs> you know, right, and the kind right. of trouble they can cause. And you actually talk and address that in the book. So what kind of challenges would you say, was it your son, Alex?
0: Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: (laughs) having those kinds of challenges with the teacher, you know, just saying, you know, he's just not getting it. He won't settle down. And the frustrations they have to the point that, you know, quite frankly, there's uh, some violence that goes on with situations like that.
0: Yeah, well, writing is actually very complex um, and it's related to bilateral coordination uh, with your eyes and with your hands. Uh, You're also having to use the little muscles in your hands to uh, manipulate an object. And, um, you know, what happens here in education in the United States is uh, writing and, and more academic skills are being pushed earlier and earlier before kids really are developmentally ready. I mean, preschoolers should be playing. They should be playing outside on the playground. They should be creating new games. They should be jumping, running, skipping, hopping, doing all the kinds of things that kids do um, that are not necessarily in an organized way. Um, and they probably would do better at their writing later because they would develop those muscles to be able to um, help them manipulate a pencil or a pen and, and color and play. Uh, interestingly, too we are now pushing cursive before printing um, here in the United States and certainly in many of the Montessori schools because the philosophy is that when you write cursive, then you don't have to interrupt your letters um, and you can just keep the pencil on the on the paper. But again, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse because the way your eyes have to visually track and how you process information and get that letter down on the page is a higher developmental skill so a lot of kids have have problems just because they're not developmentally ready not because necessarily they have a learning difference or anything
1: else now in your experience if you can share with our listeners uh, what kind of sensory uh, processing challenges are you seeing children with so they can become aware that these are possibilities and that it isn't something further? How are we identifying, uh, let's say in general, what these are? Because I know one of the things you talked about in the book is perhaps being on the spectrum, you know, autism, things like that.
0: Right. Well, um, first of all, it's important to know that all of us are actually on the spectrum of sensory integration um you have really high functioning individuals who can seem to do anything very easily and naturally and you have uh individuals adults and kids who just it's like their brain gets trapped you know it's like it's in a traffic jam um there's a you know it's not so much do you have one thing or not but it's what the pattern of your development is and how many um, glitches do you have that are getting in the way of your learning and processing, and that determines you know would you be helped by you know therapy or you know how much problems how many problems are you really having? Um, there's lots of red flags, and I list all of them in my my book. Uh, you know, according to different ages, because what's a red flag at the age of eight isn't even in existence at the age of three. So you, you know you have to look at your red flags at different um, stages of of development. Uh, But some of the big ones are when you get into school age, certainly um, paying attention at school. Um, You know, a lot of kids also seem to move a lot or wiggle a lot when they sit down and they have a hard time sitting through meals and sitting at a table to learn how to, you know, read or write. And, you know, what we know as therapists are that it's actually a lot easier to move than it is to sit still. So what does that mean, you know, for these kids? If, if your muscles aren't strong enough to hold you in a static position to be able to sit in your chair at school, how are you going to learn how to write? You know, it's like writing with a wet piece of spaghetti because you're all over the place. Um, same thing with the eyes. The eyes have to be able to visually track and work with the hands to be able to cross the midline. So uh bilateral coordination is a really big thing. So if you have a child who has problems with ball skills or um skipping or galloping or uh doing more coordinated, you know, kinds of motor activities. It takes them a long time to learn how to ride a tricycle or a bicycle. Um you know, just observing your kids and how they move, how fluid are they in their in their movement. Um you know, kids who seem to be clumsier than others. They're always falling down, and have bruises all over and don't know how they got them. Um, Picky eaters, that's another pretty obvious big red flag. Uh, Speech delays is a big red flag for vestibular dysfunction, not just speech. Uh, All too often kids get put into speech therapy and really they would benefit even more from having the vestibular piece be a part of uh, their speech therapy so there's there's a whole you know bunch of things that you can um look at and be aware of and i think as parents and teachers um one of the things is that there's this intuitive sense of there's just something that just maybe isn't quite right um it's a lot easier for teachers to often point out because they have a whole classroom of kids and they know when you know, a child is struggling more than some of the others, and they may not know what that means or what's going on with that child, but they certainly know if they're having uh, more problems than others. And so your teachers really can uh, be an advocate, you know, for your child if you have a good relationship with the teacher and can, you know, there's that communication of skillful listening and delivery and receiving that has to go between teachers and parents. And, You know, how can you work together on really helping, you know, kids the most? That's a lot, but (laughs) that's that's kind of... That's okay.
1: So let's go ahead, if we can, and go through uh, how the integration process works uh, and how sensory integration therapy works. I know you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I know you have different ways of going about it. Now, is there a way that you approach it by saying, well, this is kind of what I'm seeing here, so let's try this, you know, that sort of a thing?
0: So the first, the first step is a really good evaluation because every single child, every single person is obviously very different. So there are no set protocols, no one, you know, way of doing anything because every child is different. So with that evaluation, we get clues as to, you know, what are the patterns for that particular child, and we can identify which sensory systems may be getting in the way or may be a little bit out of balance that need to be um, shored up. Uh, with sensory integration, it's I mean, it's really a great therapy because the kids, they think they're playing and having fun. And when they're vested in what they're doing, the gains are tremendous. So, you know, when they come to a therapy session, it may look like, you know, swinging on a, you know, op- a hanging obstacle course. And what that is is, that, you know, it's stimulating the vestibular system in a certain way to help build postural muscles and control and get those eyes and those hands to work better together. Um, so sensory integration as a therapy tool is is just a very fun holistic effective way of working with um with kids for a number of different reasons you know whether they have severe autism or just have a very mild learning difference
1: now um let's talk about up uh, also that uh doctors tend to like to go in the direction of uh giving medication, you know, and that can't be good for the long term because nobody's actually changing anything for the better. And and you really try. To so um, when you talk about sensory integration therapy, does this get to through your book, the ability for people to understand how to do this and how they can actually implement it for themselves?
0: Well, it's because everything is so unique. Um, you can certainly get ideas and educate yourself. And one of of the things that we do um, as therapists is we work with parents to provide what we call a sensory diet. It's not what you eat, but um, activities that help to nourish a particular child's nervous system. Um, You know, a a therapist who's trained in sensory integration has a lot of uh, education and training behind them. So it's not, again, something that you can, um, as a therapy per se, you know, tell somebody over the phone, okay, all you have to do is do this, do these 10 exercises a day and, you know, that's going to take care of the problem. Um, it's a lot more involved than that. But in general, all children need to have a variety of sensory motor experiences that tap into all areas of their um their neural development, uh, how they move, how they take in information to the jo- joints and the muscles, uh, how they perceive touch, how they smell things, how they put things together, um, how they organize their bodies. Uh, so in general, sensory integration, it applies to every, every child, every person. Um, so just kind of having a good idea of what are some good sensory motor activities to do is what you should be doing with all kids anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty amazing process. Now, do you find that it, uh, uh, does it occur equally in boys and girls or is it kind of maybe difference between the two?
0: Well, that's, that's a great question, Daniel. Actually, um, poor little boys end up getting picked on a little bit more than little girls. But a lot of the times what happens is, it's the kids who... Act out, or who have behavioral issues, or who are more obvious in their behaviors, that um, get picked up on early. And little girls tend to not—you know—not all of them, obviously—but um, tend to be a little bit quieter. And there's uh, kind of an unconscious bias that that's okay for a little girl to not you know, seek out sensory motor experiences or to kind of watch from the corner or to not get involved in things where, you know, a little boy who's like in everybody's face and getting everybody's work and, you know, talking out of turn and making lots of, you know, commotion around himself is more likely to have the teacher, you know, say something to the parents and that leads them into therapy. So we do see more boys than girls but it's not really because boys have more problems; they just tend to stand out more. If those are the those are the issues.
1: Now, the other thing uh, that I found uh, that should be touched on here are the similarities between sensory integration deficits and the effects of concussion. Now, how did that come about in this?
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because. What was interesting is we began getting a lot of referrals for a therapy called craniosacral therapy. That's a light touch manual therapy um, when people would have a concussion. And we found that they responded very quickly to this light touch and they would come in with horrible headaches or fuzzy thinking and, um, you know, a lot of, of problems. And they could have this cranial work and they would do better. But there were still um, persisting problems that I was noticing. And that kind of prompted me to look farther into what, you know, what's going on with these people where some of the the complaints that they were having were very similar to what we see with developmental disabilities or sensory integration problems. Um, and what we you know found and what's clear in the literature and now you know there's a lot of educational uh, programs that uh, support and teach this is that when you have a head injury or a concussion there um is very often a vestibular component which is your how you um perceive movement how your eyes and your body work together um so people can feel you know dizzy or lightheaded or have headaches lots of, you know, symptoms that are related to vestibular dysfunction. And same thing with the eyes and the functional vision when you have a head injury, um, your eyes can, you know, not work together as well um, because of the effects of a concussion. And the same thing happens with our developmental kids is that their eyes are not developmentally working well together. And so they have functional vision problems, which is problems with, you know, tracking and reading and, all that kind of thing. So there's a big overlap in it's a different etiology. One is a head injury, and the other one is it hasn't been developed yet. Um, but between concussions and developmental uh, disabilities and sensory integration uh, deficits.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned craniosacral therapy. What specifically is that?
0: So um, craniosacral therapy is really. A, um, a great treatment to augment all other therapies. It's a wonderful complementary uh, therapy. Uh, it was developed by a doctor in uh, Palm Beach who's since passed on, Dr. John Upledger, and it's a light-touch manual therapy, meaning you use very light touch on the body. Um, when I first heard about it back in the ni- no, 1995, Um, I went to a class so I could tell people why I didn't think it would work, (laughs) because as a physical therapist, I couldn't imagine how light touch really could make a big difference, and I came back from that class going, I don't know what this is, but there's definitely something to it, and since then, it has really changed our practice. Um, I began to, you know, take more classes, because the more I learned, the less I felt like I knew, and so I needed to learn more, and and I had the opportunity to work closely with Dr. Upledger, and he uh, mentored me on a lot of things. We had some uh, shared patients, some little conjoined twins from Egypt that we worked on together. And um, so, anyway, it just it helps the nervous system to work optimally, and to have a craniosacral therapy treatment. Um, it is more relaxing than a massage, if you can imagine that. Uh, you really you get off the table and you feel physically altered. You're so relaxed. Um, so it's just a great complementary treatment that we use with a variety of different uh, developmental issues, and we get people from all over the country and even South America and Europe who come to us just for cranial psychotherapy.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to schools, how do parents actually work with schools to be able to integrate a lot of these processes so that they can be successful in both ways?
0: Well, you know, schools are, are um, can be tricky because um, the public schools actually do offer services and have therapists that are available um, on campus to provide services through Uh, what's called an IEP or an individualized educational program Um, to qualify for services in school in public school specifically you you have to have an evaluation and you typically have to fall um, well below the mean to be able to qualify for services so um, children who have more significant developmental disabilities will qualify for services that are provided in school whereas your higher functioning kids often will not. Um, And it just depends on the state and it depends on the services available. But there are laws that protect kids with um, severe disabilities so that they can receive um, services through the school district. If your child goes to a private school, private schools don't have to operate under those same rules because they're privately owned, not of um, uh, public education. So parents have to provide, they have to seek out their own therapy services. Um, we're fortunate we have several programs in several different schools in Dallas, so we're able to see kids during the school day at school, and we actually have um, little gyms that are um you know, available on campus, so we can you know take kids out of the classroom and bring them to the gym and do all the sensory motor work that they need, and then take them back to school. But parents have to pay for that uh, privately. Uh, it's not a, something that's provided by by the state.
1: Now it's really fascinating because you think about um, uh, people having children uh, this day and age. You got both of the parents out of the house that. Yeah, because they both have to work. And then you think about the connection that we make with our children, especially after birth, and you kind of have to wonder because it seems to be occasionally or when you got to change the diapers, so to speak, or when you have to feed them. But other than that, they seemingly are kind of put aside, that there isn't that much touch. Whereas you think about other countries, for instance, where babies rarely even touch the ground until they're at least, you know, a year, two years old, you know, in other countries, they're literally holding, there's that connection going on. Do you feel that maybe a lack of connection that way could be some of the reasons that uh, sensory uh, processing has emerged maybe more, especially in more developed countries in the Western world?
0: You know, I've never seen any studies that look at different cultures certainly um uh there's a lot of variances in different cultures um that affect sensory motor development and the timing when children will do things you know all of us are are programmed to um to grow and develop in a certain way even though we all do it in our own kind of unique way things kind of happen along a pretty predictable um way so if you happen to be in you know um India where you're held you know or carried around all the time, um it is it's possible that maybe they walk a little bit later. Um I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked at the you know cultural norms for different countries, but you know, those things certainly can affect your motor development. Um we see it with swaddling, which is a practice that we do here in the United States and somehow it got um got to be where, you know, children when they leave or babies when they leave the hospital, um, parents are taught how to wrap their babies up very tightly so that they stay on their backs to sleep. And unfortunately, parents aren't told that you only want to do this for a couple of weeks. And there are some people who keep swaddling their babies and it's, you know, three, four, five months down the road and they now have um, flat spots on their head. Uh, some you know called plagiocephaly, where um, the head actually begins to misshape because they're not moving enough. Um, same thing with you know the the rush to get babies to sleep through the night in one position, and so they're not moving and they're wrapped up tightly, so they're not able to integrate some of their primitive reflexes, and we have you know developmental uh, delays that are seen as a result of that. It doesn't necessarily mean that they won't, um, you know, learn how to crawl or walk later, but it can definitely interfere with how they do things and the quality of their movement and set them up for having bigger problems down the road. So there's, you know, lots of different things that people do thinking they're doing the right things that aren't necessarily the greatest things for child development. hmm
1: Now, uh, there was uh, one therapy you talk about in your book, and it made me think about a place uh, when I was still living up in the Northwest, uh, there is a, a group called Northwest Trackers. And what they do is they bring people into the fold and you go out into nature and you learn these different things, you know, pretty much to the level that you learn how to survive and even thrive when you're out in the wild. And Mm -hmm. so we
0: just. Uh, I think I lost you. uh,
1: What they were talking about, the guy was adamant about, is how to get out and basically feel and sense the whole being when you're out in nature. And Mm -hmm. so when I was this one particular therapy you have called multisensory listening therapy, and I thought Uh that was really amazing because. For me, what I like to do, especially when I'm out or uh, even when I'm not, is that you try to hear the things that you can't hear. You know, as we talk about how dogs and animals tend to hear on a higher level spectrum sounds that humans apparently can't, that you try Mm -hmm. to listen, can't hear it, but maybe you can feel it. And so they talked about how to integrate yourself into an entire natural environment. And so when I see, uh, you know, the uh, sensory listening therapy, talk about what that is and how that works and how important that can be in the whole process of, you know, being able to heal and, and move things forward. Right.
0: Well, I I love the concept of being in nature. I'm actually in nature right now looking out into a, a forest. <laughs> but, um, ah. you know, there's a practice called taking a nature bath where you go out and you just sit in nature and you just hear – and be a part of it. It's like you're having a, a quiet meditation in nature. And, um, you know, that's something that we do as more evolved um, adults or, you know, teens or whatever. You have to be able to to sit quietly and, and attend to that, um, that input, which can be very difficult for a lot of our kids. But for some kids, it can be really easy and really fun and engaging. And I think, you know, certainly having children in nature is a huge part of growth and development and, and something that, you know, I fear, you know, more and more children are not, you know, getting exposed to. Um, as the integrative listening program, which is a multi-sensory listening program per se, it's um, it's really not along those lines. It's, um, it's developed to have different Tones and frequencies through music, and a person wears um headphones and listens to it's you know different classical music tastes, but there's a whole different program whether it's for calming or for uh sensory you know sound sensitivities um, or attending, and it's a progression of this music that you receive through something called bone conduction. Which is actually how you hear sound through your bones um, in the in the head, so the headphones have a little vibration bone conduction that you that you actually feel the music internally, and then you're also hearing it auditorily. And then on top of that, there are exercises and activities that you might be doing at the same time. So maybe you're balancing on a balance board while you're listening to this music. Um, the headphones are designed so that you can hear people talking, and they can be used in the classroom if uh, a child is very distractible and has a hard time, you know, focusing on work. The headphones tend to, you know, can help um, tune out some of the the chatter around them, but help to organize and and so that they can pay uh, better attention. So that particular program is a therapeutic tool, but Boy, wouldn't it be great if everybody could go sit in nature and, and just feel it, it on their own?
1: But. I know. Sometimes I wonder if a lot of these uh, challenges, and I'm not saying specifically they are, that are tied to how technology, especially when you start seeing parents who allow their children as early as two years old with a uh, you know one of their iPhones in their hands. Uh, the other thing I Absolutely. noticed, too... Mine actually noticed a a lot because uh she works in hospitality. She says how often families show up, sit down to dinner, and each and every person at the table has an iPhone in their face and nobody's talking to each other. And I'm thinking, you know, what kind of society have we moved into that parents are allowing this? I mean, that this is considered normal and allegedly good behavior, you know, and you kind of wonder, I mean, even adults get that way you you sense the irritation in them because they don't want to engage in being questioned uh just you know get on with it i need to get back to my phone and scroll through my you know instagram like that and how do you see that possibly out and do you see have you seen or experienced because you've been in doing this for a while maybe an increase of uh sensory processing challenges as a result of technology what are your thoughts on that
0: Absolutely. I, you know, I, we do a lot of parent education and I do a lot of, you know, teach a lot of classes and things like that. And I, you know, one of the analogies I always tell people is learning and development is an active process. You cannot get the same experience um, looking at an iPad, a picture of a pine cone as you can picking a pine cone up. You know, it's, it's a think, um, big object, it's very light, It prickles, or, or having a puppy lick you on your face. You know, that's different than looking at a picture of a puppy. And too many kids, and this is where we really have seen an increase since COVID, because so much there was so much online teaching, even for kindergartners, when there should be all this social-emotional stuff going on, That's that's probably the most important thing that happens in kindergarten is learning how to, you know, cooperate and be with other people. But instead, you know, we've had, you know, children and parents with masks on and receiving education through a computer. And it is not, you know, it's not as effective. You know, it may have been the best option that we had for, you know, certainly for that time being, but um, it is it's backfired and it really does highlight um, why young children especially should not spend a lot of time on computers or iPads or iPhones or televisions because it's a two-dimensional experience. It is not um, active learning. It doesn't matter, you know, how – of a educational program it is for your preschooler. You're better off just you know taking a walk in nature, or going to the arboretum, or going to the zoo, or you know playing in your backyard and and you know living you know through your actions. Um, mm-hmm. it really you know technology technology is great. You know, we use it you know certainly as a great tool as you get older, but even adults spend too much time on computers. You know, it just becomes, that's the way our environment is set up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty uh, fascinating how how many times people are actually tied to it as though that's a reality. And, in fact, you actually even hear conversations a lot of times that aren't free-flowing. They actually have to do, have you seen this on this? Or did you see this latest right. movie? And. I kind of wonder: Do you also integrate? Uh, not, I can't remember if I had read this in your book, but uh, call it conversation therapy, where you just sit in a group and you just have a free-flowing conversation about thoughts and ideas.
0: Well, you know, so much of what we do involves what we call social skills, and um, mm-hmm. you know, how do you play with other people and get along and um, be able to? express yourself and get your feelings and needs met, but also be considerate of others. And, you know, to do that, it takes practice and experience. And, and you know, children who have a hard time behaving or getting along with other people, um, you know, a lot of it comes down to the modeling that they have and the experience that they have. You know, is everybody yelling at each other at home or, you know do you have conversations or you know is the conversation in pieces that a child can hear you know rather than a long drawn out explanation um so communication is is huge and being able to uh read social cues and and communicate verbally and nonverbally with others you have to be able to have those experiences you can't do that in a vacuum
1: Mm-hmm. now as you were working with your son alex uh on uh the different modalities that you were uh, using here how did he begin to integrate into the world you know it really i think one of the most bothering phrases is the idea they're normal now and it's like is that really what we want <laughs> you know well, for instance and what, son, is,
0: and what is normal
1: yeah you know, exactly we're
0: all uh, yeah we're We're, um, you know, normal is probably really what abnormal is. I don't, you know, I don't know that there is a normal. There's a, there's typical and there's, you know, it's more, um, you know, are you able to get the things you need to out of, well, can you self-actualize? You know, are you happy? Can you, um, can you take care of yourself? You know, all those kinds of things. And, um, you know, there are. I've been doing this for so long now. A lot of the kids that I saw when they were little kids, you know, grew up and they went to college and they, you know, became, you know, successful people in their own right. And now I see some of their kids. You know, it's, it's it goes on and on and on. Um, but you know, there's there's lots of different reasons for there being disruptions in development and. Um, you know, we can all probably benefit from a little therapy and jumpstart, uh, for a number of different reasons, but, um, primarily because just the way our world is today.
1: Mm -hmm. When you think of, especially in our public school system and how it all seems to be very cookie cutter that, uh, educators seem to think Students should just be sitting down in their seats, you know, listening to the dronings, for instance, of an educator for an hour, two hours until recess occurs. And I remember right. how that was, you know, when I was going to school and I was sent to the office lot. Number one reason is he's just disruptive in class. And, uh-huh. uh, was, is you got me on the playground and I became like this alpha hunter male, you know, who was the best? How do I become? <laughs> sort of thing. So I was actually uh, apparently diagnosed with ADD, but I found that to be more of a blessing in so many ways. And of course it had its downsides too, but again, when you take a look at the situation, how do we decide what's normal? Is it a child that just sits there in their seat? And we're talking about, you know, preschoolers, kindergartners, first, second, and third graders. These are kids. They should be spending right. most of their in education out there running around on the playground or in the forest things like that learning about what their world is and then guiding them in directions that actually help enhance who they really are and that's what i thought the beauty of outdoor school was or i did yeah. a lot of kids growing up as a child i loved the woods the rivers the lakes the things that you experience and the fact that sometimes i would share stories even with people you know adults that are my age Well, I didn't get to do a lot of that when I was a kid. And I'm like, well, what did you do? You know, the fact that we could live out in the countryside, even, and I did live in the city, grew up in uh, Los Angeles, Southern California. Uh, And then we moved out to the countryside. And and the privilege that was to be able to just leave the door open and go and do whatever you wanted for the day as mom and dad went out to work. Uh, Just these things that you learn and you grow with. And I'd have to say sometimes a simple therapy is trying to change your Child's environment. <laughs> Get them out to well, those I, things. I, and just see what I, they do. I,
0: I agree. I absolutely agree. And I had a very similar experience growing up. I also grew up in California, but up in Northern California. But, um, you know, back when I was a kid, we, you know, I don't know what my parents were doing, but we were playing outside all day long. We would, you know, run right. down the street and, you know, make up, you know, Baseball games and play on other people's front lawns and ride bikes and do stuff and we just had to show up for dinner. <laughs> we, right. I, you know, tie sheets in the trees and making hammocks and uh, you know we do slip and slide down the grass and completely ruin the the back grass and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But you know, as kids, you that's where you that's where you learn about where your body is in space and. And, um, you know, a lot of children don't have that opportunity today. Everything is so organized. You know, you go to to play soccer with your team, and then you go have a guitar lesson, and then you go um, do martial arts, and then the next day you're doing your art class, and you're doing, I mean, it's like everything, they're all good things, but they never have any downtime just to make stuff up and create things on their own. And, um, you know, having just a little thing about ADD and ADHD, it's actually, in my opinion, really kind of a gift to have that. In order to even have that diagnosis, you have to be highly intelligent. And, you know, part of it is you've got all this intelligence, but you focus it on the things that you want to focus on, which, you know, if you're in a school classroom like you described – Who wants to focus on that? You know, it's just, you know, it's like that Snoopy, um, Charlie Brown with the teacher that just is going wah, 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 that's all you hear.
1: Right. Now, I'm curious, too, uh, as I brought up Alex earlier and how he's integrated into the world and some, a lot of the other children that you've been able to work with, and I'm sure you coach parents to let them understand, no, there's nothing wrong with your child. They're just different this way. And trust me, a lot of children around the world are just different. And that's a good thing. That's what we want.
0: It is a good thing. Absolutely.
1: And it has been one of the biggest challenges that you had faced with a child and parents Uh, where you've seen incredible turnarounds. And I don't mean snapping them back to normal, but I think more of because the thing about children in situations like this, like I can speak for myself when, again, especially in grade school, uh, I was always punished for being disruptive in class. And I was the kid that typically had the desk that was set off from the group almost all the time so mm-hmm. i can tell you what i think is a problem with that situation and it's taken me years to figure this one out believe me is mm-hmm. i always I was outside of the group right and it, and it took me years to figure out it's because of those punishments that i faced there was right. even a particular school i went to and this was when i was in fourth grade if i remember that as soon as class started, we're talking 9 o'clock in the morning, a teacher says, I need you to go to the principal's office. I thought I was going to do a favor. The next oh. thing I know, I go to the nurse's office. She says, go ahead and lay down on that bed there. And that's where I stayed until 3.30 in the afternoon. Oh, my gosh. And the said this literally to me as I got and I was done, ready to go home. If you disrespect or this be disruptive, back on that bed you'll go. My mom couldn't figure out for a while why doesn't he want to go to school? And I never told her what was going on. Mm -hmm. Now, you think kinds of situations for me, I still grew up happy, all that stuff. I could be very nasty and bitter about the whole thing. Uh, But you think about that's what children go through because they're not normal like everybody else. That becomes very, very dangerous and sad all at the same time. The teachers Absolutely. are making
0: these, well, uh, Right, and you were you were lucky. It sounds like you're a very resilient person, and you know some children are, and some children are not. And you know, really, again, in my opinion, I feel like your self-esteem and your resiliency are so important. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we, you know, tell teachers, and this is where if you're going to have a therapist, if you have a child who has any kind of, you know, this helps them to actualize every, everything that they've got going for them. So, you know, what are the ways that we can bring out the best in a child? It certainly is not sending them to a nurse's office for a day to lay there. Um you know, there used to be a practice where if you didn't finish your homework, they would keep you in for a recess. Well, that's the most counterproductive thing for these kids with sensory processing challenges because they need to use their bodies to get their neurotransmitters moving and to be able to focus and pay attention. So, you know, educating, the you know, the teacher, uh, the parent. Um, working with the child and having it be in a really a, a positive framework, not like um, this is punishment. I mean, kids they love to come to the gym. They they don't call it therapy. That's kind of an adult term. You know, it's like it's it you know it's like their playtime or their their workout time or their gym time or you know something else. It's a it's a positive. It's not a um, a negative where, oh, I have to go to therapy today. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you really are well, working sounds- to bring out the best in kids.
1: So what would you like to say to parents that are listening right now uh, when it comes to their children? Because I know there are a lot of parents, I'm sure, out there that are battling and struggling, especially with their school systems uh, in situations like this. And They want to throw their hands in the air and, it feels like a battle on both sides, you know, trying to get your child where they can fit and they can go to school and they can learn and grow and and thrive. Then on the other hand, you know, dealing with teachers, you know, I just can't handle your son or your daughter because of the situation. Um, Because I know you talk about being, you know, your child's advocate, but also, you know, the parents as well. I'm sure you work with the parents as well. Hey, it's okay you're not in this alone (laughs) I think that's the biggest thing is realize a lot of other people out there that are in your situation it's okay let's just take one step at a time and work through this and you're going to find at the end the rewards are going to be just unbelievable
0: yes it's really it's true parenting, parenting is not easy I mean there are you know there are some kids who are easier to manage and and parent, and there are some kids that are more of a challenge, and that's just you know when you could have you know I had both and my I had two boys, and one you know was very oppositional, and the other one was just like, but things roll off his back and was real easy, so you know um it's it makes life interesting our kids are they're every one of them is a gift, and they all have something to to teach us about ourselves and bring something. Out in who we are as as people and individuals, and I think we owe it to our children to you know really try and figure out what are some of the ways that I can um help my child the most without doing the work for' them. you know too many parents um you know are up late at night doing their kids' homework, you know which doesn't make any sense at all uh if you think about what we're supposed to be getting out of school. And yet that's a practice that goes on a lot. Um, so, you know, how can you help your kids be the best that they are so that they feel good about who they are and have the tools to be able to, you know, self-actualize and have a happy life you know, when, you know, independent of us as parents?
1: So how can people find out more about your work? Is there a website, things like that, that people can explore and take the next step?
0: Yes. So we have our uh, website for our uh, clinic in Dallas is www.iptkids.com for Integrative Pediatric integrativepediatrictherapykids.com. And there's a lot of different information on there on the different therapies that are available and um there's also I have another uh website for the concussion side of things that's uh www.concussion-therapy.com that's for all ages not just children um but there's you know there's lots of information out there and there's there's lots of people who um who are available to do this kind of work. And, you know, depending on where you live, um, you know, Google sensory integration and pediatric physical therapy and pediatric um, occupational therapy and and go and visit these clinics and see what it is that they do, see what their programs are and what their approach is. And, And just knowing that there really are professionals there who can, help guide you and books that you can read and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So you don't have to be alone in this journey, but, you know, we're all in this together and um, there's lots of people who can help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I guess a good final question too on all this is, and I'm sure there are people listening that are wondering this, as they work with these processes that you share in your book, Sensory Processing Solutions, and they happen to have their child who is on a drug therapy, have you typically seen uh, these children wean themselves off of drugs? And if so, what would you say the percentage would be?
0: So, you know, I I am not, uh, you know, against drugs per se. I just don't oh, think they should be... The first step in children and should be used for very young children um there are some medical conditions that where you need to be on a medication um and you know what we do is we we work with the physicians, and if it's feasible for a child to you know ideally we like to see them before they would go on medicine so that they can hopefully avoid being on medicine um, you know there's not really you know again, I don't have a magic number of how many kids end up not on medicine. I think that the majority of our kids after they're you know they've even like from my own side for alex he he didn't need to be on medicine when he was getting therapy and then he'd have. Years that were really good after that, and then when things would get rough, then we would get back in the gym and do more work and you know he was able to do really well without that um, but you know every child is different, and it just it needs to be approached on an individual basis i've had I had a child once who was um on some very heavy medicine, and his mom just decided to take him off of it without telling anybody and he had a psychotic break. So, you know, people have to be very careful about once somebody's on medication, how they get off of it, and it has to be a medical decision with the physician who's prescribed it as part of that solution.
1: Yes, I completely agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on our program and sharing this with uh, uh, the listeners out there who may be facing these challenges. And again, you know, you're not alone, just one step at a time. And besides, you never know in this journey when it might awaken something in you that you didn't discover before and how you can just kind of take a whole new direction along with your children as well.
0: That's right. That's right. In the meantime, get out in nature and take a nature bath.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you again for being on the program with us. One more time, if you could, go ahead and give out that website and contact.
0: Okay, it's uh, www.iptkids.com and, um, in, and uh, www.concussion-therapy.com.
1: Very good. Thanks again Thanks for, listening. Again for-
0: Oh,
1: you're so welcome. Thanks, Daniel. Okay. You bet. Bye. We want to thank you, the listeners out there, for tuning in. Take some of your sensory, push a few buttons, and join us at beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. Stay up to date with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50, as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 Radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. Have a great day.